0: You're listening to KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you're about to hear were told at the Kanuaheite Northern Light United Church on April 18, 2023. Co-hosts for the evening were David Noon and Jane Hale. The theme for the event was Better Left Unsaid. The Southeast Alaska LGBTQ Plus Alliance was our profit recipient. Live music was performed by The Standards.
1: So our, our first storyteller, Robert Bowles. Robert is a, uh, a veteran of Mudrooms. This is his second Mudrooms talk. The first one, he believes, was in February of 2020, which might have been, well, would have been the last live Mudrooms event for for quite some time. Uh, Robert is still working on becoming the most interesting 85 year old that he can be, and he still has a number of years uh, in which to achieve that goal. Since coming to Juno. He's relearned how to ice skate, he's played hockey, become fairly proficient at downhill skiing, tried the town downhill ski race at Eagle Crest, raced in, and that's in quote marks, uh, the buckwheat and tour of Anchorage cross-country ski races. Uh, He didn't score a lot of goals in hockey, and he's never been on a first-place team or finished first in a race, but surprisingly to him, he did achieve a first in March of this year. So welcome, Robert. Okay.
2: Um, I'll ask again. How many people went to Folk Fest? Okay. It's a great sunny day, too, and I spent a lot of time at Folk Fest. And so I'll admit, I'm not as well prepared as maybe I should be because I stayed out to like 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning and a couple of nights. Um, But I want to tell you about somebody in my family who has never really grown up. They like to play a lot, too. And and that's what I like to do here in Juneau. Uh, That person is my mom. And she's 91 years old, and she still plays piano every day. And she drives a little bit. She drives in the neighborhood. She'll drive up to the clubhouse and play trivia. And I can understand why my dad fell in love with her, married her because she um, she she likes to have fun, she was always really good at, at organizing camping uh, for us and filling up the the boat full of food for us to eat. Um, we always had a lot of music at family gatherings. We would gather at my grandmother's house and and I remember eating dinner there, and everybody would gather around the piano and we would sing Christmas songs for several hours so um I guess my mom gets the credit for my love of music and also for my staying out at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning at Folk fest. So she was, she liked, she read to us a lot growing up. She understood the importance of of reading to children so they learn how to learn language and learn how to read, get a love of reading. And uh, so she read a lot of the usual books to us. She read uh, The Cat and the Hat and, The Sneeches. I'm sure a lot of you have read these books. I never was sure whether mom, you know, was really reading them for me or whether she just liked to read them. You know, she read you know those pale green pants with no one inside them, which is one a lot of people don't haven't read, but my mom loved that book. Um, Yurtle the turtle, and I'll be honest, I did not know how to spell Yurtle. It's not spelled like turtle. It doesn't have a U in it. It has an E in it, and that that being detail-oriented, you can blame on my father. So she would read the sleep book to us. She never made it through the entire book. She always fell asleep. But now I recognize that might have been a ploy to get me to fall asleep so she could, you know, enjoy herself. Uh, Horton hears a who. Horton hatches an egg. And, um, oh, I also want to mention a couple other things my mom would do. She loved to take us up to this we had this big hill beside my house. We would get in one of those little red metal wagons with a little tiller thing you steer. You know, you can't really steer it very well. And we would ride down that hill weaving back and forth with my mom driving her feet and laughing as hard as she could all the way down. And I don't know how I got down the hill without falling out of that wagon and breaking a bone. But like I said, my mom, she read to us a lot. and She also read Bill Pete books to us huge Harold the rabbit, the giant rabbit, and uh, she read um, Hubert's Hair Raising Adventure, which is the story about the the lion that gets his hair burnt off, his mane burnt off, and so everybody's laughing at him, and he gets his monkey friends to, to create a magic po- potion from crocodile tears, and the crocodile tears make his hair grow so much that it ensnares the other animals. So maybe, maybe mom is responsible for this. Um, my grandmother had a lot of friends and family around, and oh, I forgot. There's one book I forgot to tell you about. That's Ella the Elephant, the circus elephant that runs away. How many of you have seen that one? Okay, and it has a lot of illustrations in that book. And I was very observant three- or four-year-old. And I had been to the Atlanta Zoo, because the Atlanta Zoo was across the street from one of my grandmother's houses. I had seen elephants. I knew what they looked like. They have fairly tough, thick, wrinkly skin. So on one of my visits to my grandmother's house, Mrs. Idson was there. Mrs. Idson was a... Uh, someone who was, I think, in her late 80s. She was a friend of my grandmother's. And as my mother said, uh, when I was introduced to her, I looked up at her, and, and I said very sweetly, Hi, old wrinkle face! Wow. Mrs. Itson was a little hard of hearing, and she looked down, and she said, What did he say? And my mom said... He said, you had a very pretty face. So my mom covered for me in that instance. And, and I guess that's what moms do. They always love you, and they're always there for you. And so Mother's Day is coming up soon. And so I really just wanted to tell that story to say, Happy Mother's Day to my mother, and thanks for everything. Thanks for reading for me. Thanks for all the fun we've had. And I'll see you soon, Mom.
3: Our next reader is Alan Cleveland. Alan drives a taxi here in Juneau where seven minutes of dialogue frequently ends with the hope of a meteor strike. (laughs) Alan.
4: All right, Uh, shout out first to the band. Outstanding. (laughs) And shout out to the mudrooms, You guys are great. And to God, who, according to the Bible, will give me the words that I need in the moment that I need them, which is now. (laughs) (laughs) I did almost no prep for this, except for drive people up and down the road every day and look at the things that we see on a very regular basis in this town. And uh, starting out with the first storyteller that gets us going with it age issues and i'm looking out and i'm thinking i'm kind of in the younger part of the crowd (laughs) but the truth of the matter is i just got my permanent id from the state i'm now officially 60 years old they believe i am who i say i am (laughs) so anyway through this town you know you pick up folks here and there and we pick up it over here at the. Oh, what do they call it? It's, uh, what is that flower? (laughs) The fireweed place. (laughs) And there's no fireweed around. (laughs) But we pick up there. We pick up at the mountain view. You know, more seniors. They got a view of the mountain. The mountain actually has a view of them. It has an eyeball that looks right down on them, (laughs) which needs to be repainted, by the way. Somebody has destroyed the good vandalism that was there before. (laughs) And then you travel further out the road, and, uh, you know, you'll make it out to uh, uh, Wildflower Court, right? More of your friends in there. Nice. They've actually got a few flowers that grow on the side of the hill there. (laughs) And then below (laughs) Wildflower Court, you've got what you guys call twin lakes. I call Poop Lake. I've called it Poop Lake for years and years and years and years. And they're draining it today because it, you know, kind of collects dog stuff. (laughs) Next to Poop Lake, you've got our landfill, which I will guarantee everybody in this room wants to find a solution for. And there's a lot of talk about it, but nobody is going to do anything because it's going to cost some money to uh, do something about it, but that's right in a wetland. There's water that runs through it all the time and it goes out into our Gastineau Channel. Juneau is not the pristine Alaska that everybody believes it is. It's actually pretty nasty (laughs) under the road. (laughs) So (laughs) we're, we're, we're going past the dump. And you'll see the eagles out there flying around, and sometimes they're carrying plastic bags with them. And, you know, lately I've noticed that Safeway's putting uh, American flags on, the, on their plastic bags, so it'll be a little more patriotic as you <laughs> get, a, get out that direction. <laughs> it's so sad. <laughs> and then right next to Safeway, you've got More senior housing going in. They built trillium landing right on the riverbank because, again, we don't know how water works, right? (laughs) (laughs) We don't. (laughs) And so they've got that facility out there. But the thing that bothers me the most about it is that I heard a guy talk about trilliums, the flower. And he said... That it doesn't pollinate by attracting bees, it pollinates itself. Its superpower is that it smells like rotting flesh, <laughs> and it attracts flies. Is that horrible? Like, can we do something better for those folks? <laughs> we can build the we can build the the North Douglas Crossing, and on. The mainland side, we can call that Trillium Landing, at Vanderbilt, <laughs> and then maybe just name that other thing Bone Voyage. <laughs> That's what I got.
1: Uh, our next storyteller is a first-time mudroom storyteller. She's actually my colleague, uh, Nguyen Nguyen. Uh, was born and raised in Vietnam. She's now teaching history down the hall from me at the University of Alaska Southeast. She left the country to stay away from her mom, and apparently we're all going to understand why after hearing this story. So welcome to the stage, Dr. Nguyen.
5: I know this story will boggle many minds here today and will traumatize all of you <laughs> and leave most of you with more questions, and I'm happy to answer them later. <laughs> it was a summer day when I was 11 years old. I came home from school in the afternoon and I found that Key, my dog, was absent. I asked my mom, Where's Key? She said, It's gone, I sold it. It stunk up the house. Disgusting. A year before, my dad brought Key home. Me and my younger brother, we were over the moon. It was our first dog. It was my first dog. She was a little puppy, happily wagging her tail to me and my brother. She was tiny, and we loved looking at her. Disproportionately big around the belly, swinging left and right after each meal. It was so full, it almost touched the ground. We called her Ki. In Vietnam, Ki is a household name, uh, household to go name for most dogs when the kids can't come up with something cuter. (laughs) My dad was not a particularly affectionate person, but he was very ready to entertain his children with stuff like a dog and he certainly felt rewarded by the way we reacted to the new addition to the house. A year later, Key had grown into an adult dog. Short, yellow fur, long legs. She had lost her puppy chubby belly, but she still bounced left and right each time she saw us come home from school. Not that day. You sold her? I asked my mom in disbelief. It had not occurred in my consciousness that people could do something like that. Yes, in Vietnam where I grew up, people eat dogs. She answered, yes, to the dog restaurant. She told me the name of the restaurant, which I forgot, but I knew which one she referred to. It's, it's the one up the hill, maybe five minutes away, walking. It means he would be killed and eaten. For my entire life, as far back as I can remember to this day, I have always been someone who is slow in responding to trauma and cruelty. When witnessing them, either done to me or others, I often froze, not knowing what to think, feel, or how to react. It could just be the way I was born to be, or it could be how I became because of the way my parents treated me since both, but that's another topic for another day. That day, at that moment, I froze in silence. I took my heavy backpack upstairs. Before I could settle down in my room, I heard my mom hollering my name with excitement. Come down, come down, quick, come down, quick, key's home. It's almost as though she was happy for me that key came back. I ran downstairs to the front door. It was my key. She had broken out of the cage and found her way home. I saw cuts on her fur stained with blood. She headed straight to hiding under the bed in the spare room. I awkwardly stood there listening to my mom babbling about how amazing it was that Key could do that. To her, uh, to her thinking out loud what would happen next, that the restaurant owner would come soon and take her. I went in the room, sat down, and looked under the bed. Key sat there on her belly. She was not shivering, she just looked at me. As unsure as I was, she was not paying attention to the blood on her body, but she did not come to me. I did not call her name either. I wish I had done so. Mom was right. A moment later, the man came. I saw him walk, walk in from a distance. Like many dark restaurant owners, he had a rugged look, but he didn't look menacing to us. He just kind of grinning as he approached my mom. The two of them exchanged a few short words. I heard what they said. I looked at my mom. I swear I have no idea how I looked. Could it have been a pleading look? Or could it have been just a blank look on a frozen face? But I do know what I was thinking. I was thinking, Mom, he made it. She deserved to leave, uh, to live. Mom, please, reconsider. But not a beep came out of my mouth. My mom quickly turned to go into the spare room. She called Key. Key crawled out. No resistance. She let the man put the leash on her neck and walked away with him. That scene cut into my soul to this day. I ran as fast as I could upstairs. Tears swelled in my eyes. I don't remember if I stomped my feet or not. Everything blew together. I don't think I have ever fully examined all the emotions I, I experienced that moment. I was looking forward to see my dad home that day. I think I was wanting him to go get key for me. I think I might have even wanted him to reprimand my mom. As soon as he came in the house, I swung myself to him. Dad, mom's old key. He looked at me with some sympathy and then said in his childlike voice, the voice he used whenever he thought we needed it, oh, it's okay, i bring another one home. Again, I froze. So, it's just that, no attempt to retrieve my dog, not a word to my mom, another dog? But it's not my dog, it's not my key. I don't remember how I survived the next few days. Then another afternoon came when I arrived home from school and saw my mom. She looked as though she couldn't wait to tell me the story. You know what? Key was pregnant. I looked at her. I felt frozen. She looked at me with searching eyes. I think she just wanted to see how I processed the pain. Yeah, she continued. The restaurant didn't know that. Until they opened her up, I just left. From then on, my my dad kept bringing more puppies home, and they were just as cute. But none of them made it; they all died before they reached adulthood. Some were killed by traffic. Some were poisoned uh, by accidentally, you know. Some stopped eating, starved to death. Some had, di- some had diarrhea. It must have been dozens of puppies until we told my dad not to bring them home uh, because we thought we would just condemn them to death if we brought them to the house. We think our home was haunted and cursed by Key, as it should be. As for me, I never forgive myself. I could have fought for Key. I could have cried and screamed and made a scene, especially after Key had broken the cage and come home. Instead, I froze and did nothing. I, I should have told my mom, screamed at my mom after the ordeal, that, Mom, you are cool. Your heart is cold, if you have any at all.
3: Our next storyteller is Missouri Smythe. Missouri has lived in Juneau for 35 years, born and raised in New Zealand uh, to Samoan immigrants. Her journey across the ocean with her husband Chris and son Q in tow finds Missouri happily settled and active in the Juneau fine arts community. Please welcome uh, my dear friend Missouri Smythe.
6: lava from Samoa, and Kiora from New Zealand. As you can see, I'm wearing the traditional wear from New Zealand, uh, where I was born and raised. So this assignment has been very interesting for me because uh, since I had learned about it, I've been walking around just listening to people uh, make statements with regards to better left unsaid. And so I got to thinking, better left unsaid. Is better left unsaid um, when you see somebody coming out of the bathroom and um, their shirt is still tucked in their underwear and (laughs) you don't want to say anything to them for fear of maybe embarrassing? Then I thought, gosh, is better left unsaid? And I think Mr. Noon um, alluded to this earlier earlier is not expressing your political view because it is opposite to a friend, a close friend, and you don't want to ruin that relationship that you have with them. And then the last thing I thought was, or is it better left unsaid because um, the outcome is uh, going to make the decision with regards to better left unsaid? So I thought about all of those things. And I thought, well, okay, where do I fit in in that? And last year I had an opportunity to go home to New Zealand to visit my sister, uh, Bonnie and her family. And the last time I'd seen Bonnie was uh, pre-COVID when we were in Canada um, visiting our brother on vacation. So I met her at the airport and she greeted me warmly. And pretty soon after collecting our luggage, we got into the car and headed home. And of course, as we're heading home, I'm looking out the window, so pleased that I'm home again, and seeing all the lush, beautiful green, greenery of New Zealand. And of course, the memories of my home and the things that I'd done when I was growing up begin to flood through my mind. And I remembered growing up, my parents were immigrants, in a small three-bedroomed house. And in that small three-bedroomed house were my parents, five siblings, and a grandma, And needless to say, finding our space, finding our place, finding our identity was a a challenge to say the least. But we survived. I was excited about this trip because uh, my sister had bought a new home. And so I was going to have the opportunity to see this lovely new home that she had. And there it was, beautiful two-storied home, um, modern home uh, with an immaculate yard and lots of space. And so I was so pleased that she after experiencing with us a small house, was now able to live in this lovely uh, home. The thing that surprised me was when I walked into the house, I was immediately overwhelmed by every single inch of the wall in that home was covered in these huge collage photographs. Photographs of her three children, her five grandchildren, her one son-in-law, and my younger sister who happens to live there. I just stopped dead in my tracks a two-storied house just covered wall-to-wall with all of these photographs. So I put my bag down, turned around, and looked at this, and I caught my younger sister's eye, who has no filter at all, and she just glared at me. And I knew right away, do not say anything. LAUGHTER now, the reason why I didn't say anything, my younger sister, she's in her 60s, she has no filter. In fact, sometimes when I'm driving in the car with her and I say this with all due respect, and I'm gonna tell it because she says it from a Polynesian perspective, she's driving along, somebody will cut her off and she go, where the hell did they get their license? Was it from a, <laughs> a cereal box or something? And so she was very vocal about statements that she'd make. Anyway, over the next few weeks, I watched my sister, Bonnie, run her household. And she would get up in the morning every single day. And in her activities, she would clean the house, she would clean the house again, she would go outside, she would mow the lawn, she would do the laundry, she would cook the food, she um, could not sit still. Even as we sat down and socialized and talked, she could not sit still, she'd stand up. And in New Zealand, we have what is known as a salu, which is, um, uh, I would say, dried, Um, cane, and it's wrapped up in a circle, and so that when you go and sweep the floor, you can get all the corners. Or she would get up, and she'd start swatting the flies, because in New Zealand, there's a lot of flies. So as I'm watching her doing this, I'm thinking to myself, it started to get a little bit um, unnerving, because... Uh, we weren't able to sit down and to enjoy each other's company. When her grandchildren came, she was very much a part of the grandchildren's life, in their business, talking to them, making statements for them, counselling them, doing everything that you could possibly do. So I said to my sister, Valasi, what the heck? is she like this all the time? And of course, they look at me as the expat who now lives overseas, very opinionated, coming home and telling them all of the things that they are not doing that they ought to be doing. So I pulled my sister aside, Balasi, and I said, "Balasi, is she always like this? And she goes, oh yeah, Missouri, don't even say anything. That is 24-7, she is like that. So I thought to myself, well, okay then, I will just leave it as it is and continue to um, carry on enjoying the company that I had. My sister is the fourth child of six children, Bonnie, and she was the quiet one. And she was the compliant one. And she was the one who did all of our chores and her chores. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, there I was, Miss Social Butterfly, flitting around all over the place, you know, and talking and visiting with friends. And, um, and so Bonnie was very, very quiet. And it wasn't until later when I met with her as an adult after I'd gone away for college and she came to visit me and she said in our conversations, you know, Missouri, I um, felt like I didn't have a voice in our house. I felt like I didn't matter. And of course, I felt quite bad about that. And, and um, then later on, as I was visiting with her in New Zealand, she felt like that... Uh, That she was not worth anything. The one thing that you don't know, folks, is my sister is terminal. She has stage four lung cancer and has never smoked in her life. And as I watched her during my visit in New Zealand, with all of the activities that she was involved with her grandchildren's life, her adult children that live with her, and the continuous movement that she had, I began to understand that it was her way of coping with what she was dealing with. And so, when I said goodbye to her at the airport, and I hugged her, knowing that this might be the last time that I get the opportunity to visit with her and to hold her and to reassure her, I told her that I loved her, and I was so glad, I was so pleased that in that moment and during the time that I'd spent with her, that I had left a lot of things better unsaid. Mahalo.
0: You're listening to Mudrooms Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO Juno at 104.3 FM. These stories were told on April 18th, 2023. The theme was Better Left Unsaid. If you'd like to hear stories you may have missed, Check out 12 Years of Story Archives at our website, mudrooms.org.
1: Our next storyteller, uh, Becky Rosarito. Uh, Becky grew up in Juneau, uh, ventured to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for 12 years before returning home to Juneau in 2016. She is a lover of cats and misses her road kitty, Sammy Longlegs, who keeps her company on her road trip from Pittsburgh to Juneau, uh, kept her company, uh, but has two new fur babies, Princess Winifred Tanbottom and Frankie Fancyfeet, uh, who keep her on her toes. Welcome to the stage, Becky.
7: Okay, so growing up, uh, my mom worked nights at the hospital, so... My dad was the one who got me ready for school and fixed my hair to the best of his abilities. Uh, Helped me with my homework, that kind of stuff. Uh, So I spent little time with my mom, but the time I spent with her was really special. Sometimes before she went to work, we'd snuggle in her bed and watch Bewitched or The Love Boat or I Dream of Jeannie. And... She always went all out on Easter. I'd wake up Easter morning, and there'd be a basket by my bed with the first clue to a little scavenger hunt I would go on around the house, and then I'd get to the end to where my little Easter prize was, and she'd always plan Mommy Becky nights. Um, Sometimes we'd spend the night at Grandma's feather bed, or she'd rent a room at the Travelodge. And I got to invite my two best friends, and we could go swimming and have girly nights. So it was really special that time I got to spend with her. April 1st, we all know it was April Fool's Day, she thought it would be perfect to wake me up and tell me that her and my dad were getting divorced. Try telling your friends on April 1st that your parents are getting divorced. So anyway, she's like, I'm leaving your dad, and I just remember saying, does dad know? <laughs> because that's how close we were. I'm like, she's going to run it by me first, and then she'll talk to my dad, which is not the case. So, so they get divorced, and, you know, I get to pick who I'm going to spend most of my time with, and I choose my mom. So, we're living in this little two-bedroom apartment in Oak Bay, and she was working two jobs, you know, trying to save money, pay bills, and... She treated herself to a brand-new La Crusade pot. Two-quart, pine green on the outside, a lovely cream on the inside, La Crusade pot. Not cheap. We used to like to use it to steam artichokes, and what we do is we each pick out an artichoke, steam them up, get a side of butter, put in a movie, and then sit there and eat our artichoke all the way down to the heart because it's the best part, And uh, she would even sometimes let me eat her heart because she loves me that much. Uh, So one night, I'm like, hey, mom, let's make some artichokes and uh, watch a movie. And my mom's like, you know, I'm just, I'm really tired. I'm going to go to bed. But if you're careful, you can make your own artichoke, and I'll even let you use the La Crusade pot. I'm like, oh my gosh, I think I was like 12 years old and this is the first time I'm going to do something by myself and she's going to let me use this pot? Like, I'm going to show her what a big girl I am. I'm going to do this on my own and make her proud. So she goes to bed and I get the pot and set it up and get the water in there and the artichoke and put the lid on it, go start a movie. have no idea what I was watching. Movie, I was watching it and... You know, every five, ten minutes, go check and make sure there's enough water in there because I do not want to ruin the pot. I don't want to mess this up. So go check. Go check. And finally, I'm like, okay, well, I should probably put some more water in it. So get some more water in there. And I'm like, okay, I don't need to check it so often. I'll just let it go. So watching a movie, and I hear my mom coming down the hall. So I'm like, oh, So I get up. And as I get up, I hear... Rebecca Margaret Rossarito, get in here right now. I am in trouble. So I'm like, go in, I go in the kitchen, and I look at my mom standing there. Now, my mom has this amazing thing that happens when she's super angry. She loses her lips. They they disappear. She can't do it when she's kind of mad, just when she's super angry, gone. So now not only has she used my full name... She also has no lips. (laughs) I am in deep trouble. And I look, and in the sink is this La pot, whose lovely inside cream color is now a brownish charcoal. I burn the bottom of the pot. I start apologizing. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And my mom just says, I can't talk to you, Rebecca, I can't talk to you. And she goes back to our room and closes the door. I feel terrible and I'm like, okay, I can fix this. I can fix it, I'll fix it. So I start scrubbing and chipping away the charcoal thinking that cream will appear. It doesn't. <sighs> so I leave it in the sink and I go back and knock on her door and she says, Rebecca, no, I can't talk to you, go to bed. So I go to bed. So I, wow, I did not cry when I practiced this. (laughs) So I go in my room, and I've got that knot in the pit of my stomach, and my heart is falling, and I'm just like, my mom is never going to speak to me again. She's never going to talk to me again. And I, like, cry myself to sleep. And next morning, we wake up, we go in the living room, and she's like, Listen, Rebecca, I was really mad at you last night, and I couldn't talk to you because when I was growing up, my mom used to say some of the most nasty, hurtful things to me when she was angry with me, and I promised myself that if and when I had kids, I would never do that to them. I love you, and I never want to say anything to you that I can't take back.
3: Okay, here we go. Our next storyteller is Jenny Smith. Uh, Jenny was born in the desert and raised in the rainforest, having moved from Central Oregon to Western Washington at age six, and then up to Juneau at age nine. She is a 1968 graduate of the Kittyland Kindergarten in Madras, Oregon. A 1974 graduate of Walk Bay Elementary School, was promoted to Floyd Dryden Junior High School in 1977, and graduated from Juno Douglas High School in 1980. She went on to earn a bachelor's degree in aeronautics and astronautics from MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and then entered the Air Force as a second lieutenant in 1985. Over her 38-year career serving the Air Force and Coast Guard, she has transitioned from rocket scientist to shore facility engineer, moved from coast to coast twice, and spent 12 years in the Fairbanks area before coming back home to Juneau in 2008. Uh, Friends, family, coworkers, supervisors, commanding officers have always known Jenny as someone who doesn't hesitate to speak her mind even when some comments are better left unsaid. (laughs) Please welcome Jenny Smith. So I have had
8: a lifelong uh, episode after episode of things that were better left unsaid. And uh, I started my, I guess I could say career, or maybe my, you know, outspokenness at the tender age of two. When I was experimenting, you know, scientifically, with the petals under my mom's sewing machine, right? And one didn't do anything, right? You press on it, nothing happened. I guess it was a footrest. I never figured out why they had that bump on there. Didn't do anything. But the other one would go, you know, and start the machine going wildly. So I did that a few times. And finally, my mom wanted to put a stop to it, told me to knock that off and get on out of there. So my little two-year-old response was, shut mom. And I guess I was, you know, I was still in those lucky, tender years, so I didn't get a spanking or anything, but I did get scooped up out from under the table and carried off to play somewhere else. So that was the start of it all, and uh, no big consequence at that time, luckily. But, you know, life went on, and uh, I got pretty quick at dodging my big brother and sister when I had a little attack of smart mouth, and, uh, you know, I wasn't always the youngest, but I was almost always the smallest, so I got quick, and... Uh, you know, basically dodged consequences as I was growing up. Well, one time, about sixth grade, so it's was an Ock-based school, um, school, me and some of my friends had finished our assignments, and we got to go to the library. So we go to the library, which at that time was uh, smack dab in the middle of the second floor of the school, and uh, in the library were all these other kids, all bundled up in all their winter gear and some disgruntled-looking teachers with them. And they were not happy that we came into the library because they were in the library because their room was frozen and it was cold in there. And so they started to scold us and shoo us on back out of there. And so what was my comment on that? It's like, well, if it's so cold in your room, why are you still wearing your coats in the library? Well, she did not like that, marched me out of there and down to the principal's office and called me a little (laughs) which I thought was very inappropriate, very inappropriate for a teacher to do. And so I told on her, I told the principal and he says, well, where are you? (laughs) So, you know, starting to learn this this rank thing, right? This rank thing where, oh, I'm getting in trouble for my smart mouth and she's got a foul mouth but she's not getting in trouble. Well, I sorta grew up, went off to college, right? And in college, I was in Air Force ROTC. I was a cadet, and I was going to be in the Air Force. So all my friends thought that was a crazy idea. How could I ever be in the military? I certainly wasn't a yes ma'am, yes sir kind of person. But I thought I could be a good officer, right? So away I went into the Air Force. You know, there was also some perks. There was a scholarship involved, and uh, I didn't have to take a whole bunch of the tests that everybody else had to do when they were finishing engineering school. So I didn't have to, like worry about going to grad school. I didn't have to worry about going and getting a PE. I didn't even have to worry about um, interviewing for a job. They were going to tell me where to go and what to do, right? So they shipped me off to Space Division. It's not Space Force. Space Division, and that's an R&D place, so research and development. So where was I? I was surrounded by engineering officers of the R&D variety, and so they weren't very rankety. And we could pretty well discuss things, and you could make comments, and you didn't really get in trouble for things. So I was a pretty spoiled young officer. And then I got sent to an Air Force depot. And the Air Force depot is where you send officers off to ruin their careers, you know. So... You have coworkers, cohorts that are engineers like you, but the people above you are pilots riding desks. And they don't really like flying desks, and they want to be looked up to, respected and have all those con- you know military customs and courtesies that some of us maybe lacked. <laughs> so in particular, the commander was um, Colonel Rousseau. And he looked like he could have been like a mafia capo, you know. He Very handsome, but very cagey face, and you didn't really want to mess with him. And then he had a deputy, and the deputy kind of looked like Colonel Clink from uh, Hogan's Heroes. But he didn't act like Colonel Clink. He wasn't all high-strung and silly. He was more like a Gestapo or SS officer, you know, quiet and looking at you. And he was always observing, right? Like he observed me parking in the front in the, in the visitor's Spot because I was late and I, was, and I needed to get somewhere. And so later he called me and made me move my car. And I, you know, I had some thoughts about that. I didn't know what his job really was. You know, he's the deputy, but what did he really do? And uh, one of my new co-worker friends, a young lieutenant asked me about that and I explained my opinion about it. Yeah, he doesn't have anything to do. He's always looking out his window to spot people parking in the wrong spot. And uh, around the corner comes this colonel. (laughs) Hello, Captain Smith. It was very obvious he'd heard the whole thing. And uh, I said, speak of the devil. (laughs) 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 And introduced him to my new friend, right? (laughs) A few months later, I was detailed to set up a a promotion ceremony for one of us. And uh, they always held him in these crappy, dingy, conference rooms down in the basement of our building, and I thought that really sucked. So I thought we should have this one over at the O Club, and Colonel Russo was the uh, president of the O Club, so I thought I'd make him happy, and it catered in and I had it all set up nice, but I had to be out of town when it actually happened. So uh, I came back from my trip, I asked how it went, and I just happened to be standing upstairs in the front office. And they said, oh, they made us go get all the food and bring it down to that conference room. <laughs> they wouldn't let us have it in the O Club. I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? Why not? And Colonel Klink pops his head up and says, I made that call. I just couldn't see letting the whole civilian workforce spend all that time walking over to the O Club. And I stood there, and I looked at him. and. It, it was just begging. It was just begging for a response, and I didn't deny it. I just said, "You know, sir, when I get to to be of your level of rank and responsibility, I hope I can make command decisions like that." <laughs> <laughs> he did not laugh. <laughs> My friends kind of gasped and laughed and, and tried not to laugh. The next day. I was called upstairs, and there was a letter waiting for me. Not a letter of reprimand, but a letter of counseling. So I did have some consequence. And as it turns out, I never made major. So I had some kind of serious consequences. And my friends from MIT were right. I was really not cut out to be in the military. (laughs) And, you know, if you're an officer, it's up or out. So I had to get out, but then they hired me right back as a civilian. And as some of the folks in the audience can probably attest, my mind over tongue has not improved a whole lot over the years, a little bit, but not a whole lot. But recently I found out I was supposed to be doing something that I thought was ridiculous. And I was in the conference room in front of my new staff and my commanding officer, and I said, what? Are you kidding me? I'm not doing that. And she looks at me and points at me, and uh, I said, that's stupid. <laughs> well, this time, at least, I'd already got the promotion. So all's well, that ends well. And I did apologize. But yes, I'm still working on the better left unsaid. <laughs>
1: All right, our final storyteller this evening is Guy Archibald, who is a multi-time veteran of the, the Mudroom stage. Better left unsaid is the antithesis of Guy's personality. Guy thinks like the scientist he is, and facts are facts, no matter how they may affect someone's feelings. Lacking any of the normal filters, diplomatic or otherwise, he usually does not leave anything unsaid. A couple of things about him... Better left unsaid are, no matter what clothes you put on him, uh, he looks like he slept under a bridge. And yes, he has tried every barber in town to cut his hair into some kind of submission and they have all failed. Welcome the unkempt Guy Archibald to the stage.
9: I think this story falls better into Jane's original category of a story that probably should not be told, but if you know me, I'm going to tell it. And if this was a TV show, it would probably come with a little parental guidance warning for maybe language, so I'll apologize in advance if uh, anything I say um, or left, leave unsaid um, offends anybody. I don't mean to do that, but... Uh, So in 1988, I graduated with a degree in secondary science education. Uh, My wife and I had worked our way through college, so by that time, I was uh, 30 years old, and we had three children. Uh, My very first teaching job was at a very small rural teaching uh, school district in southeastern Colorado, about 10 miles west of Kansas and about 10 miles north of Oklahoma. The entire school district was in one big brick building. Kindergarten through 12, 72 students. Very conservative, farming, ranching community. It's probably better left unsaid that the school district didn't hire me because of my stellar academic credentials. It's because I brought three little units of federal funding with me. (laughs) And like I said, I was the 7th grade life science, I was the science teacher, 8th grade biology, Ninth grade physical science, 10th grade geology, 11th grade chemistry, and 12th grade physics. I coached the girls' volleyball, softball, and track team, and the baseball team, and I was the substitute bus driver. $19,000 a year, which back then was still not a lot of money. (Laughter) This school district, like I said, was very conservative. I was told not to expect or encourage any of my students to attend college. They were expected after graduation to follow their parents' footsteps into the farm or the ranch for the boys, and for the girls, they were expected to marry the boys, and have families and this is how it's been going for generations down in this very little insular community halfway through my first year I was approached by the State Health Department a representative called me up and informed me that the governor had just signed legislation requiring HIV and AIDS education programs for every secondary school and how would I like to be the one to write the curriculum and then try it out in this school district as a pilot program for the entire state? At this point, I probably should have asked, you know, why me and why here, um, but I didn't. In 1988, uh, just to put it into context, we we're in the very last years of the Reagan administration's do nothing, say nothing approach to this epidemic. It was just the year before that Princess Diana showed the world that you could actually touch an AIDS patient and not die. And over 47,000 Americans had perished. And there was very little information and there was a lot of disinformation out there. So I went home, fired up my uh, Tandy 486 computer and got on, you know, I dial up Prodigy Internet Uh, access, you know, this is not a search engine back then, kind of co-opted my college's old Science Direct uh, account and I started doing research. And within three months I had developed, you know, a complete curriculum of of objectives and evaluations and bench sheets and, and a glossary of terms. Prior to me being allowed to implement this, I had to present it in front of the school board. Normally, the school board meetings were held in the living room of the president of the school board, but in this case, because the word had got out, they moved it to the cafeteria of the school, which was about like this, and about as many people um, dressed very differently. Um, most of the men didn't tore their sleeves off their shirts, and, and out through the windows, I could see the dirt parking lot full of pickup trucks, each and every one of them having rifles in the rifle racks, and... Back towards the exit was my principal, with his arms folded, as most of the people in the crowd were, and uh, the health department lady strategically planted next to the exit. (laughs) And then that's when the question came into my mind, is why me and why here? Um, So I stood up on a chair, and I thought, I'll start with the glossary of terms, because we all need to have the same basis of understanding for a conversation. First term, AIDS, AIDS, a, AIDS, and I acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, and I explained what that was. And then I looked down, and people are just like this still. I looked down at my list, and the very next term is the most common method of transmitting the disease, male-to-male, through intimacy, starting with an A. And have you ever been to that point where you know the very next words out of your mouth might be your last words? (laughs) So, anal intercourse. Whoa, the entire room erupted, everybody on their feet is all I can hear is just random words of anger and accusations and threats. And, and I noticed that my principal and the county health nurse are gone and <laughs> several people are headed to their pickup trucks. And uh, so I decided, there's two things. One, it was kind of a shock thing. So I would just, I'm two minutes into a two hour long presentation. <laughs> I'm just gonna drop this word as much as I can hoping that the shock value kind of diminishes. Uh, That didn't work. Uh, On their feet. Uh, But what was unsaid through all the accusations and anger and name-calling was the fear. The community was scared, and they weren't scared of an unseen virus. They were scared of this outside world coming in and disrupting their their nice, neat commu- community, and I heard that somehow through all that, and so I just tried to remind them of what it was like when they were teenagers and the sometimes random, risky sexual behavior that you do. They all grew up on a farm, right? <laughs> I shouldn't have to explain this, and that... There was really nothing to be afraid of as long as you had the information necessary to take precautions. And the people that have AIDS are not those people that we're not going to talk about that are better left unsaid. You know, those people have always been here. They've never harmed you. They're not going to harm anybody. This, This is a new world. It's obviously evolved in a lot of good ways since then. Bad ways that I still. But sometimes you have to say what might be better left unsaid in order to hear the real problems people have with it. And I lived to be here and tell the story.
0: This is KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live at Mudrooms on April 18, 2023. The theme for the evening was "Better Left Unsaid." Southeast Alaska LGBTQ+ Alliance was our profit recipient. Live music was performed by the Standards. Special thanks to Kunaithiti Northern Light United Church, Copa, and the Rookery for supporting the event. To Alaska Robotics for hosting our website, mudrooms.org, and to KTLO for bringing each Mudrooms to listeners like you. Better Left Unsaid was the last Mudroom show of our 2022 23 season. We'll be back in September to kick off another season with new themes and new storytellers. This program is a production of the Mudroom Storyboard. Alita Buss, Jeff Smith, David Noon, Kristen Rankin, Crystal Brulette, Jane Hale, Summer Custer, and me, Rich Moniak. Have a good night.